Welcome friends, my name is Steve House and you are in the house with Steve House tonight. And this is episode number one of this little podcast series where the spirit of this is going to be cracking open a beer and sitting around and having some real talk about mountains and the mountain community and the things that affect our lives. So tonight I'm joined by Alyssa Clark for the inaugural episode. Welcome Alyssa, thanks for everything you do to make this happen. Yeah, I am really excited about this series, Steve. You and I have a lot of conversations kind of off the podcast, and you certainly know just a few people in the mountain world. And we really just wanted to bring these conversations to others and just share a lot of your experiences, other people's experiences, and just have the chance to have a fun conversation Um on the air, off the air, in the house, out the house. So I uh, apologize in advance. My voice, I'm coming back from a case of laryngitis. My voice is um, a little different than usual, but uh, we're just going to go with it. So Steve, what are we talking about today? Well, I'm going to start a little tradition right now. And in I know that it's more coffee time where you are and more beer time where I am, but uh, that's going to probably be the case most of the time. I'm in Austria. I'm going to open a different beer every time we do this. And tonight it is a beer called, and I just got to try to say this because this word has like 57 uh, <laughs> letters in it. Fjertsen Heiligener Beer. So I think it's like the four-toothed holy place beer, something like that. Somebody can help me translate that out there. So that's going to be my companion for this journey. And what we are going to talk about is, well, it's actually, I think what we're actually going to talk about is responsibility for ourselves out in the mountains. And the conversation tonight is, is brought about by the recent release a few days ago of a film that I was involved in called uh, Todesfale. Hautrut, which translates to Death Trap Hautrut, which was a film that was made by a gentleman named Frank Sen. And it was produced by the National Television of Switzerland. And it's aired in Switzerland and the German-speaking areas, Germany and, and Austria. Right now, it's only available in German, but they're working on English uh, translations and plan to roll it out to other other countries and all of the film festivals and stuff the rest of this year. And I know, this I sent you a, a link to the YouTube version. It's a 90-minute film, and you can watch it using the settings and auto-generated subtitles, and that's what what you did. And uh, yeah, what, what were your just top-line impressions of the film and what, what I know it brought up a bunch of questions. We're going to get into those, but what was your overall impression? Yeah, so um, it's pretty easy to watch, honestly, even with um, it being in a different language. If you if you speak English, um, it was funny seeing you dubbed over. I was like, no, but I understand, Steve. Don't dub him over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say it's a it's a really well put together film because it does a great job of weaving interviews with uh, 
kind of reenact reenactments and then um, like visuals of the area, etc. Um, so it, it does a great job of telling the story, but also bringing in perspectives um, through the interviews. So I, I was really captivated it captivated the whole time. Um, I think that it it shows a lot about how complex it is to be a human and especially mm. to be a human in a setting that we that, that it's challenging to exist and, and also how we we trust each other. Um, and I actually think that the final piece of the movie, which I think as we can use as somewhat of a, a framing mechanism, um, is asking these three questions. Was it bad luck, human error, or carelessness? And I think those three questions really tie the whole movie together and also frame a lot of what we do in the mountains and how, how we navigate that. Um, but before we've kind of jumped a little bit, but Steve, do you want to give us a little bit of background about what was the death trap? What is the hot route? Um, so that we can frame it for Absolutely. those who haven't seen the movie. Yeah. 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 I want to do that. I want to, and I want to explain my involvement too. So <clears throat> this goes back to 2018 and many of you will know that I have been a mountain guide in a former life. I was uh, started mountain guiding in as an apprentice mountain guide in 1991 as a 20-year-old working on in the North Cascades, but mostly on Mount Baker. We should do. I should. I want to. I want to tell some stories about that someday, but that's for another time. And uh, I have you know, considered mountain guiding my profession for most of my adult life. And I have really retired from guiding, um, particularly, you know, let's say around 2016, 2017, I really phased out <clears throat> of guiding. And uh, I've retain i have some very close and deep relationships with some of the people that i have guided many times over the over the years and two of these individuals um rowan and oj i had been hounding me to go do the hope route with them and i had in my guiding career i had always avoided guiding routes like the hope route not because it's not a beautiful tour it is, in fact, a beautiful tour. It is that I have, in my career, been in so many situations on these climbing routes and skiing routes around the world that are popular that I've ended up having to be in situations where I was, you know, in the role of the rescuer. And not that I was unwilling to be the role of the rescuer, but I also have been in, around in the mountains enough and throughout the world to know that there's a lot of places out there to ski and climb that aren't crowded and don't have lots of people in them. Nevertheless, I want to, well, I think it's important to frame that up for a couple of reasons. One, it was my first time guiding the Hoot route or skiing the Hoot route. I'd never been on in my life at this point. You know, I'm 48 years old, 47 years old. Uh, I'm mostly retired from mountain guiding, but when I do guide, I take it very seriously. And I've survived a lot of uh, adventures in the mountains due to that approach, I feel like. 
And yeah, so the Haute route is, for those that don't know or aren't familiar, the Haute route is a ski traverse that starts in Chamonix and ends in Zermatt. Typically takes, you know, roughly a week. Some people do it, you know, it's been done multiple times in under 24 hours, but most people do it in a week and you stay in, in a series of huts. There's a variety of huts. There's different ways to break it up. There's different little variations and all kinds of things that you can do. But that's that's basically the, the frame. And Rowan and OJ and I scheduled ourselves, to, the three of us, to do this the classic way in this in March of 2018. So we, we, we met in Chamonix. We did the very all the classic things, which is the first day you go up the Guide de Medine, you ski the Valle Blanche, which is a very wise thing to do because it gets you up at altitude a little bit. Get the just it gets kind of a gear check and all those things. You stay in Chamonix another night, and the next day you go up the Grand Monte and you you ski a very short section uh, down from the Grand Monte and up the glacier a little bit to the Argentière hut. You know, the next day you, um, this is where I, this is where I have to pull up my maps. I remember all the, the name, place names. It must've been in April. I think it, was it in April? You said March. Um, I think it was, let me check. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it was in okay. April. Yep. All good. It's not like you've never, you know, just, just yep. a few trips that you've guided. Yeah. Right. And it, it is, yeah. So we did it in April and actually it looks like I can tell you that we, we started on April 24th. <laughs> um, so it was actually late April. So we, you know, did the classic route from the, you know, Argentier hut up to the Cabane de Triomphe. Then the next day you ski down to Champex and you usually get a taxi there, go over to Verbier and go up the ski area a little bit. We stayed at the Cabane de Montfort. From there, we skied to the Cabane de Prafleury. And I'm, I'm sketching these out because these names are important in the story. The next day, we went from the Cabane de Plafari to the Cabane de Dix. And then the next stage from there is to the uh, Vignette hut, Cabane de Vignette, and from there to Zermatt. So I want to back up a little bit and just sort of lay out the story. What happened for us is the, the day that we arrived at the Cabane de Plafari, we met an old friend of mine who was a French mountain guide, and he was with uh, three guests who were two uh, French women, her Spanish boyfriend, and now husband. And they have a child together, and his a friend of his. So the three or four of them were skiing together, and um, my friend Simone was guiding these guys and I had climbed with Simone in the past and we hadn't seen each other in a while. Just kind of one of those, we weren't close friends, but one of those random like bump into an old friend thing in the mountains. It's always fun, right? So uh, the this is important this day because two important things happen. One is that there is some a really big storm forecast for about 
you know, roughly two days from this time. And two, we met Simon, who is a friend of mine, who's a very accomplished mountain guide. He's a professional mountain rescue crew on, on Mont Blanc Massif, incredible climber. And uh, so the next, then we skied that day from the Cabane de Prafleury to the Cabandis. And this is an important day because it's mostly just a, I would call it a transit day. You don't do a whole lot of skiing. You do quite a bit of flat skinning and you have to traverse around this huge lake, this huge reservoir. And we got to uh, the Cabandis and it's also important to realize that the Plafori, there's no internet service. There's no cell service of any kind. It's actually quite a bit of the Haute route is no cell service, which is part of this story as well. And from the Cabandis, we, there is cell service there and there was a weather forecast. And so we were all aware that there was this bad weather forecast and we checked and confirmed that at the hut. It was still forecast. We didn't really know that they seemed to be really off with all over the place with the timing. When you check the different forecasts, the, the timing wasn't too good. And, and so without kind of going into the the story i think that just kind of sets up the scene of of how we kind of came to be the caban dis so once we once i checked the you know we checked the forecast of the caban dis so we had lunch and simone and i were pretty concerned because the weather forecast was really bad for the next day like this storm with massive massive winds like you know, literally they're forecasting hurricane force winds, like, you know, 200 kilometer plus an hour. So 120, 125 mile an hour winds. And, you know, this is the Haute route. Like you're at a high elevation the whole time. You're up on big glaciers. And the next day is literally the high point of the whole tour. You go over the Pina de Orola, which, you know, is about 12,400 feet. It's a little less than 4,000 meters, if I remember right. And so it's also one of the most exposed sections of the, of the tour. So we're, we're very concerned about this storm that is forecast, has been forecast basically for a week at this point. Um, we were out of, out of data for a, a night. Now we've got confirmation. The forecast as we get closer to the storm are, of course, a little more accurate. But the timing is when you look at the different models is still a little bit all over the place. Um, and I talked to, in my conversations with Simon, he tells me that two weeks earlier, he had done a heli ski trip that he guided where they flew in a helicopter to the top of the Pina de Rola and then skied down back to the, the town on that side of the, on the Swiss side of the Pina de Rola, uh, which is called Arola, not, not surprisingly enough. And so I said to him, like, okay, you, and he, this is really important. He had a GPS track on his GPS device and on his phone from that descent just two weeks before. So I said to him, okay, I'm going to skin up to the top right now. And it was, you know, it was lunch. It was like noon. Like we got, you know, it was a pretty easy sort of stage of the tour to get there. Not a lot of elevation gain. I felt good. I was fit. And I said, I'm just going to skin up there. It's good visibility now. There's good weather. 
I'm going to go up there. I'll go there by myself. It's a good track. I'll be back in like three hours. So I did that. I took my uh, self up there and just, and just went super light, took a thermos. No, actually, actually I took a, a can of Coke. <laughs> I remember that. Took a can of Coke and a, a, some, a chocolate bar or something. And I uh, skinned up to the top of the Pina de Rola. I actually found the, the stakes that Simon had told me about that were the landing stakes with little flags for the helicopter pilots. And he said that's where his GPS track began from. And I, I saw that and I looked down the other side of the Pina de Rola drank my Coke and skied back down. I was back, you know, relatively quickly, you know, three hours later or something. And the whole point of that was to, first of all, familiarize myself with it, but mostly to get the GPS track in. So I had that. And, you know, this is essentially how I came into this film project because the next day um, turned out to be, uh, and the next following night turned out to be uh, very um, dramatic for uh, and tragic for a lot of people. So that was, I believe, uh, April 28th. It could have been April 29th. And then the next day, you know, the forecast hadn't really been updated, didn't really you know, now we're like basically less than 24 hours out from the storm. And we, everyone in the hut in the Cabandis knows the storm is coming. The it's, everyone's talking about it, but as, as is typical in these, um, in these huts on the Haute route, there's, there's a lot of people like there's, you know, I don't remember. I mean, I could, couldn't tell you how many people it, the hut was full. So it was in excess yeah, of a hundred people. Uh, might have been 150 people like every every you know the 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 area where people sit and and eat and and drink and stuff in the evenings was full of people it was very there's a lot of energy everybody was very nervous you could feel it and the our goal was really really simple um simone and i decided we were going to join forces and move our teams over the Pina Darola to the vignette. And because the storm, while it was forecast to be very fierce, it was forecast for the next, mostly the next afternoon and night. And we thought we could beat the storm to the Caban vignette, the vignette hut. And then, then it was supposed to be over. It was only going to last like, you know, 12 hours. And then we could complete our tour to Zermatt. You know, we didn't really talk to anyone else in the hut. And uh, not, not really. We literally didn't talk to anyone else in the hut. We were just our own little group. We, you know, together were whatever, seven people. We kind of had our own table. We kind of hung out together. We were a group whose common language was English. We were probably, as, as, at least as far as I recall, the only kind of English language group there. There was, you know, obviously there's a lot of you know, Swiss, so they're speaking, you know, Germans and speaking French and, and all these different different languages. So they, um, this is really important because, you know, the next morning we woke up and we were, we briefed our group very strictly on 
what was going to happen, like all the responsibilities, like we, we took them through our th- whole thought process. And I was, I was, uh, and Simone and I were very prepared. I had a GPS on my phone or, you know, the GPS app on my phone. I had a big backup battery that could charge my phone two or three times. I had a Garmin GPS, a handheld Garmin GPS with two brand new lithium batteries. I had two more brand new lithium batteries to back those up. I had a paper map, I had a compass, I had a GPS watch, and I had, um, the only thing I didn't have was an analog altimeter that I, you know, but I had like backups for the backups for the backups basically. And everybody felt we 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 proposed this plan to the group as guides and said this is what we think we need to do. This is how we're going to succeed. This is how we're prepared. And what do you guys think? What do you want to do? Because we gave them the option too. We said we could also go out over the I think that it's the called the Chevre or the Pas de Chevre uh, and ski out to Arola. And then we can like, you know, make it it's like a variation to the tour and we avoid the, the high peak, but uh, it's the safer thing. And we decided as a team, as a group to to do the to stick to the classic itinerary. And that's that's what we did. So, yeah, we were the first out of the hut. Um, there was a bunch of people kind of leaving at the same time. And we were the first to the top of the Pina de Rola. There were some other people that were a little bit behind us, uh, like 30 minutes behind us, but we never talked to them. And everyone was kind of, we were just in our zone. And Simone and I were really focused on our group and keeping our group together and, and moving and being efficient and making, we minimized transitions. It was real, like, it was really serious. Like we were kind of strict with them. Like, this is a big deal. We can do this, but we have to be really like tight here. You know, we know there's no room for error, but everyone in the group was very experienced as a ski tour. And there was nothing particularly challenging about the skiing or anything that was challenging for any of these people. So that's what we did. Um, We, uh, I believe if I remember right, that, that we, got to um the uh pina da rola uh are in we got to the uh vignette hut from the cabandis in uh four hours and 48 minutes to be exact as i'm looking it up here and we we left at 6.45 a.m. So we were back at, at the hut, like whatever, five hours, roughly five hours later. So we were we were at the hut. That's what I recall. What I wanted to say is we were at the hut before noon. Oh. And we, as we, when we were on top of the piña, the visibility was shutting down. It was getting a little windy, but it wasn't uncomfortable by any means. It was actually warm, typical for these kinds of storms, it was warm and we skied down, we skied down. It was pretty, pretty bad visibility. We actually just all snow plowed and side slipped in a tight group, like literally like one right behind another, because it wasn't about skiing and whooping it up and having fun turns. It was about efficiently making sure everybody got down safely. And, 
we couldn't see well. And just for the visibility, it's a lot easier if there's someone right in front of you, you have some depth perception, right? And Simone was in, I was in front on the way up to the top. And then I took the back on the way down and Simone was in the opposite position. And yeah, we Did, arrived and yeah, go ahead. And he used, you used obviously your GPS on the way up and then he used his on the way down. Exactly. Yeah. Right. He used his yeah. GPS on the way down. I tracked as well. Um, I had also, um, I had like written tour plans, like before I left in the States, I consulted with other guides in the, that were friends of mine in, in the area and had built like actual tour plans with all the, you know, waypoints and all the things so I could navigate in any situation. So I had that as well. And so, yeah, we got to the, the hut at noon and we, you know, didn't really see, you know, anyone. We got to the hut. We had lunch. The storm got worse and worse. Um, a couple of other people sort of trickled in, particularly I remember like maybe two or three um, other people. Um, we were speaking with the hut guardian. There were other people that had reservations at that hut that night. Um, but, uh, you know, as is common in these huts, you know, there's no cell service here. Um, so it's, and most of this section doesn't have any cell service. And, you know, this is, uh, this is something that I think is surprising to people on the Hope route because you're relatively close to civilization, but you, you have no outside data connection or, phone connection and so a lot of people just didn't call in and didn't cancel he didn't really know who was coming or who wasn't that kind of thing so what this film is about i will say just to kind of skip to skip ahead is there was a there was a the next morning uh it was calm and clear and we went we left the vignette at 6 a.m on our way to zermatt and we were about a hundred yards out of the hut when we heard somebody yelling and saw some people up above. And what we ended up happening next, um, you know, I think that people should watch the film. Frankly, I don't want to recount it for my own protection. It was my own psychological protection. It was, uh, we found one, a person that had fallen or been blown off and was had been killed, and that was the first person we found. And then we took I took all the clients back to the hut, the, our guests, and Simone and I went back up together. There was bad avalanche risk. We navigated some avalanche risk to get up to where we had heard this guy yelling, and there was another nine people up there uh, in various states of, you know, life. Some were dead. Some were on their way out and some were, some were back. One of them was actually seemed to be doing sort of okay. And we, I, I returned to the hut because there was no cell service and uh, whatnot and uh, initiated a rescue and let the hut guardian, because the hut guardian is the one who's supposed to coordinate in these emergencies in the mountains and in, in the Alps. And he, he did that. I returned to Simon and started helping him, um, we were basically triage in a triage situation, trying to decide who we thought could survive. And, um, you know, the Swiss did an incredible job organizing the, the rescue. We had Eric Glacier 
and Air Zermatt, and I think we had we had like four helicopters there at one point. Um, line, you know, we a, a professional rescue came came in. Uh, Pascal from Air Glacier was on the ground, was there within about twenty minutes, and then he kind of took over because Simone and I were in shock, and he started helping. They got people to the hut. They had then by then a medical doctor in the hut. And then that, the medical doctors were doing further triage uh, and then sending people out to various hospitals around Switzerland. There were so many casualties that they couldn't send them all to the same uh, same, same hospital. And, and this is what the film was about, is how this happened. And my role in it, I think, was to you know, help guide uh, Frank with my story, my side of the story. And I did a number of interviews about my experiences uh, with this. And this is this is where we wanted to talk about this. And I think that people will understand. I don't want to uh, focus on the grim nature of the, the, the tragedy. I want to, as, as Frank has masterfully done with the film, I think it's a really important conversation for us to have as a community. And it it strikes at the core of what mountaineering is, which is this concept of both freedom and the responsibility that comes with that freedom. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a big, big topic, but I think that we as a community can both honor those that, that lost their lives and those that survived and ourselves, our community by, you know, talking about these things in an open, honest way. And I especially want to emphasize in a non-judgmental way, I don't think that there's really any, I think that as a community, when we talk about accidents, I think we really need to get past this idea of fault and into this and move towards this idea of what can, you know, this happened, We're, we're fallible, people make mistakes, things happen, bad things happen to good people. And how can we, you know, as a community, hopefully learn and grow from that. The only real mistake at this point is to not learn from our mistakes. And yeah, so that's, I know that uh, that's a bit of a, of a heavy monologue here, but maybe you have uh, some uh, thoughts on, on that and can help guide us from here. Yeah, well, first off, I really appreciate you sharing that i i can't imagine um the challenge of that whole situation to say the least but uh, i i think your point is that the worst thing we can do is not learn from it so i think we're all really grateful that you're willing to speak on what we can learn from it i think that's pretty evident in the film um is that really the questions that are left is is how how do we take this and and be safer be more responsible in the mountains. And I think that goes to this really fundamental question that I have. And and I've used guides in the past um, before for adventures. And also my husband and I have taken out people, not in a guiding situation, but in a situation where we're helping learn or, or helping people to learn. And mm-hmm. which is a different situation. That's not a, a paid relationship. But <clears throat> I guess, how do you see the the responsibilities break down because it's really tricky like Cody and I tend to my husband and I tend to take the perspective of we should be 
we shouldn't just be compl- so reliant upon the guide that we don't have, you know, skill sets or have some kind of way of, of contributing. Um, but I know that's not necessarily the case with all clients and, and guides. And so I guess I'm curious from a guide's perspective, like what do you see as the role of a client? And also as situations become more dire, how does that relationship shift where you were saying, okay, when things got really bad, we were very firm, you know, okay, we're, we're dictating the transitions, et cetera. But how do you find that balance with a client? And, and what do you see as the client's role? Yeah, I think that there, the, the true answer to that is there are a number of different possibilities for the guide guest relationship. And there's, and they can vary on the same trip. <laughs> and they can certainly do get, vary from guide guest to guide guest. And so, you know, in this scenario, you know, OJ and Rowan, I mean, OJ, I, and both of them I had known for years and been guiding for years. And we'd been in a lot of experience, had a lot of experiences together in climbing and mountaineering, skiing, ski mountaineering, every possible way. And we were actually, and still are very close friends, two of my closest friends. And I think that Simon had a similar relation with his team. Like these were people that he'd clearly been on a lot of trips with. They knew him. They loved him. They joked with him. They were like brothers and sisters almost, right? At the end of the day, I think that, you know, becoming a guide is going through, you know, what is what is most often now a formalized, somewhat formalized process of training that is extremely rigorous. And that training is supposed to be extremely rigorous because you are supposed to come out as a different person on the other end. You're supposed to come out as a person who knows how to do all of these preparations and so on. And I'll be honest, like if I go out for a ski tour with you, Alyssa, like I'm not going to do all this preparation, but if I'm going out and my role is mountain guide and I'm putting the pin on and I'm doing that as, and I'm assuming that responsibility, then yeah, I, for me, I am doing all that preparation. I am building route plans. I'm talking to people who've been there before. I'm doing all these things, you know, Different guides take that uh, differently. Some people take it more seriously than others. I think that the risk with a lot of these, what I would call normal routes, whether it's the Disappointment Cleaver on Mount Rainier or the Hoot Route, you know, people assume that there's just going to be a lot of other people around and that there's going to be a trail and they'll just be able to kind of follow. And they, for me, that's the that is disrespecting what is the freedom of the hills you know the freedom of the hills is founded on taking responsibility for yourself and if you're not able to do that you arguably don't deserve that freedom because you haven't earned it and guides play a really important role in our culture and in our community because i think that they should be the standard bearers for this rigorous preparation and they should be the ones that have the backup plan 
have the navigation plan, have the bivy, extra bivy sack, have the extra first aid kit, have the extra satellite phone, you know, whatever it is to, uh, to take care of a huge variety of situations. And uh, I think that, you know, most guests, you know, if like, I think that, you know, one of the, the juxtapositions here is that this, this, the, the people that were, that spent this night, that got lost and spent the night out because they didn't have a navigation plan. As I understand it, there was a guide and he kind of sort of merged with some other people who were who were doing the traverse without a guide and he didn't have a gps he maybe didn't have other navigation equipment but he had done this tour a bunch of times and i think that this is some of the i I would leave it to the film to explain kind of how some of that unfolded and what those some of those questions might have been but i think to your question it's it's a it's like any human relationship it's best if you're really explicit with it from the beginning and you talk about it you know i coming as your guest am expecting x i as your guide am expecting y and and then it's then it's all on the table and you can have that conversation and you know in in the case of rowan and oj and i that conversation was in largely implicit because when I, you know, that was exact, that is exactly our agreement when, when we go out the mountains is, and, and I still go out in the mountains with them and I don't accept money for guiding anymore. I've hung up my pin and I still go out with them, but I tell them like, when I'm, when we're out together, like I'm going to be in guide mode because I've, I have the most, you know, I have the most experience in that. When we, when we go to the wine bar, you know, then it's OJ's turn. <laughs> he's, in, he's in charge. He's a sommelier. I have no business guiding in that scenario or making any recommendations. But when we're in the mountains, I'm going to assume that role because of my experience base. And that's that. And we're explicit about that. And I think that's the best thing that, that you can do. And, you know, you had this, you know, it brings up the film brings up this concept of, the, the expert halo and, uh, you know, trusting experts out there in the field. And I think that that brought up some really interesting, I'd like to hear what your thoughts about that were. Yeah. So um, I think that, I mean, one of the heuristic traps, and this is more in a situation where um, you ha- you don't necessarily have a guide, but you have someone who's supposedly the expert who goes out and you, there's, to break it down this halo around them. And so people are unwilling to speak up if they feel uncomfortable or feel that um, they don't have, or that they might have insight into the situation because such and such knows what they're doing. We don't question them. And so um, in the film, it brings up one of the um, guests who, who did survive had a GPS. Um, He offered it and Mario said no initially, and they were very lost. Unfortunately, he had the GPX track of the summer route, not the winter route, which did end up causing issues. Um, And so I guess, um, you know, in a situation, and I think one of the other challenges of the group is that it was a very big group. Um, It ended up, it was 10 to begin with, and then they, they linked up with two other or four other skiers um, who were doing it unguided. And so when you have that many people and that, that causes a lot of tension and friction. 
Um, and so I guess I'm thinking about like, at what point in such a dire situation does a guide stay a guide or does it become more of a collaborative? Okay. We're kind of outside beyond the scope of, of, of what one person can handle. And it sounds like from what you're saying is that you a would never have put yourself in the situation, that situation if possible. And B that as a guide, your responsibility is to be able to handle that situation. And, but I guess, so say you needed a GP, like your GPS, somehow your 5,000 batteries died and your client comes up and says, Hey, I actually have a GPS track. Like, how is a guide, do you handle that? And how is a client, do you handle like, I actually don't trust my guide right now. What do I do? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard. And this goes back to, you know, there people people are fallible. There's lots of ways to, to make mistakes in these situations. You know, I think one of the things that I personally credit to my having been able to survive all the things that I did in my career as a guide and as a as a climber was preparation I'm like I'm yeah. like a I'm I spend a lot of I over I'm over prepared like I've you know and and this is I think for me it's very important to, and this, this is this, this conversation comes up a lot around more in the avalanche safety realm, where people talk about group dynamics and this kind of thing, and and this expert halo and that kind of all of these things, and you know we have to realize, and everybody involved has to realize that for most the most part, nobody knows, there is no right answer. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. potentially a lot of right answers and there's potentially a lot of wrong answers and there's no one right and no one wrong. And, but I think it's, you know, this concept where you, you have to like, it's almost like hyper realism. Like when I'm in the mountains, it's hyper real. Like I need to deal with the reality that I'm observing. And if somebody and, you know, when I'm kind of annoying as a climbing partner when the conditions are marginal because I'm constantly questioning. I'm constantly asking questions. I'm constantly saying, and, and, I, and I think it's, and I tell my partners when I'm out, like, I don't mean to be creating, like, pressure and bringing us down. Like, let's reset. I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to ask this question again, if we should go down in another 15 minutes or another hour, that doesn't mean that like, you should feel like I'm saying constantly that we need to go down. I'm just saying that we need to ask the question again and let's be real about what the situation is and not like magical thinking doesn't work in the mountains. Like you cannot wish the storm away. You cannot wish the GPS track onto your device you have to deal with reality. And this also goes to another thing that I think can be used. I, I think honestly that uh, if a client, if you're in a client role with a guide, you absolutely have every right to ask them, he or her, what what they know. And, do a, and, and it doesn't, 
and it's not enough for them to just say, I know the way they, for somebody to know something, I think that this is, this is a standard sort of, of, of truth, if you will, that I'd like to use in, in lots of realms. It's like, okay, how do you know that? That's the next question. Show me, you know, that like, you know, the root, okay, where, you know, how do you know that? And rather than somebody saying like, oh, I know this about X, Y, Z. Okay, great. I believe you. Now tell me how you know that. Show me your evidence. Show me your data. Show me your your reference, whatever it is. And frankly, I think that, you know, this is where we got to let go of the ego and the guides particularly have to be willing to be questioned and I know when I was a young guide, I would have been triggered and offended if somebody questioned me because I was the guide, gosh darn it, and I didn't, nobody should question me because I knew I'd already figured it out. How dare you question me? <laughs> you know, actually, <laughs> they have every right to question you and you owe them an answer. And and if we let our guard down and just say like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. I owe you an answer. Let me show you. And if you really know it, it won't be a problem to explain it. It's, it's the, the same person coaching. that can't explain it, right? It's the person that can't explain it. Yeah. That's when you're. That's when you know you're on thin ice. When they're when they're so defensive and they can't explain it, that's the thin ice, and that's when they probably don't actually know. And it's sort of like doing due diligence in a way. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that in my book. I think that's a great, that's such a great point. Um, Cause I think, I mean, I, when we use guides, we ask them tons of questions just because we want to learn. Um, it's probably annoying. It's not because we're necessarily questioning their authority or anything like that. It's like, Hey, I just want to know why are, why are we going this way? Or what, what led yeah, you what to you this decision? What you, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's like, I mean, if you're invested in it and I think that probably goes to, I think there's a lot that clients can learn about or guests can learn about being guests where it's like being curious, being interested, you know, are you there for a, a passive ski or are you there to learn and grow and, and better yourself? Um, and I think that that probably goes to the point of that initial conversation you were talking about where you get a sense of, okay, this is a person who's just always heard of the hot route, thought it'd be fun. Let's do it. Versus someone who, hires a guy because they want to learn from them yeah. or grow from them. Um, and both are, and both are legitimate reasons. Both are okay. Yeah. And I know, Absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry that some of my, I apologize to the audience that some of my recollections of the numbers of people and the timing and stuff are off. I've honestly had to kind of wall some of that off from my memory because it was an extremely traumatic experience for me. Um, I know there were a lot of people up there. I know that a bunch, I know, I don't, I couldn't even tell you exactly, honestly, how many people died. Like I didn't know any of these people. I found, you know, I'd never, I mean, apparently I'd been close to them in a hut the night before, but I didn't know. I never talked to them. I had no, I never met Mario, the guide. He was the one who died. The one, first one we found actually. Um, and, you know, I, I touched and lifted and hugged and cried and <laughs> did all the things with these people, but I, I never saw them. I've never seen them. The survivors I've never seen again either. I never ha had any contact with. So um, it was this very intense, like, oh, this all happened in basically three hours. My whole interaction with this 
with this tragedy spanned three hours where from the time we found Mario at probably like, you know, 10 after six in the morning until everybody was, you know, either, you know, we, we, they flew us, they flew us off the, we, we were in, we were also like completely devastated, right? Like they yeah. actually flew us out um, to the air glacier base and they, they had like psychologists there waiting for us and they started treating us for our, you know, trauma that we'd just been through and um, which was, which was fantastic by the way. They took really good care of us. They organized everything for us uh, that next, the rest of that day and so on. But nevertheless, that a lot of the details of, of what happened are a bit of a blur because it was just like all of a sudden we we were going to Zermatt. And then like all of a sudden, like there were bodies and you know, dying people and people in cardiac arrest and all of the all of these horrible things happening. And then and then it was over really fast too, because once the professional rescuers and helicopters came on scene. But um you know, I think it uh, kind of goes goes to, for me, a lot of, you know, when I think back on my experience with this, uh, and if I think back, like, what would I do differently? Would I have done anything differently? And I, I can say that I wouldn't. And that's really, that's really... Um, good <laughs> for me to be able yeah. to say that because I, I did my preparation. I took care of my group. Uh, I had no idea these people were out there. None of us did. Uh, you know, it was a shock for us to find them in the morning and we did the best we could. We really, the main thing we did, if anything, was to note was to get the helicopters coming up there and to get the professional rescuer because these people all needed to go into a hospital and have like very very specific care and there wasn't there much you could do uh, in the field in that that situation and that's kind of one of my uh, big takeaways as I think we didn't end up finishing the tour because obviously after this experience we like I said they flew us out and we we were done and. Uh, and, and that wasn't exactly how, uh, we, we expected that day. It wasn't, wasn't at all how we expected that day to go. We, you know, the storm was over, we had good visibility. It was kind of funky snow, you know, that kind of thing. We were just thinking about Zermatt and, uh, you know, it's, it was incredibly tragic. And, you know, as, as you said, like, you know, was it bad luck? Was it human error? Was it carelessness? Well, you know, I mean, you also said something really good. I thought that it, it illustrates the complexity of being human, like of, of all of those things, there was bad luck, there was carelessness, there was human error. There was also things that were done really well by everyone involved. And there was, you know, as you watch the movie and you'll see that there's people who went through that experience and have nothing but good things to say about Mario and a lot of gratitude. And there's other people who were on the same there and went through more or less precisely the same thing and have nothing good to say about Mario. And that's also really interesting. I think that that also encapsulates the complexity of being a human and moving through a scenario like this. And I think, um, 
this is exactly what I know Frank wanted people to get out of this film was not to make judgments, not to point fingers, but to have us as a community have this discussion as to how we want to show up as clients, how we want to show up as guides, how we want to show up as, you know, general public doing a, a ski tour, what level of preparation and when, you know, there's, there's not every hot route that you need to have that level of preparation. Like I prepared a month beforehand because I, it's not like I lived there that I didn't live in Europe at that time. I was just going to like get on a jet, be dropped into Chamonix, like, do this tour in seven days, get on a jet and fly home. Like, so I had to prepare for the widest possible scenario because I had no idea what was going on. It's not like some of these, you know, guides in, in the Alps that maybe do the whole route three times, four times in a year, you know, in one season. And they've maybe done it, you know, 30 times in their lives. Of course, like they're going to have a different sense of what that preparation is than, you know, what I would have when I'd never been there before, never done, you know, other than a couple tiny segments and I basically not done any of that route. So, you know, everyone's, everyone's variables are going to be different and they're going to bring a lot of, a lot of different expectations, a lot of different experiences to the table. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I guess there's kind of three points that came to my mind first, just a small thing, but in the movie, and I think this is, we've seen a couple of people email or question, um, is that in the movie, it makes it seem like you might have interacted with him or known he was there, or known something was happening. And so I think it's very good to make it clear. It's like, no, in those huts, and, and I can attest to this, like, they're crazy. Like, of course, you wouldn't yeah. know random X person, you know, you don't have a relationship with them. And so I think it's really good to hear where you're like, no, I I never seen the guy. I'd never interacted with him. And and so I think that's a very good. And I also didn't know where they were going, and I think yeah. that lots of, and especially in a situation like that, because of the weather forecast, everyone was changing their plans. Like some people yeah. were going to uh, another hut on the Italian side. Some people were going to Arola. Some people, you know, we were, to my knowledge, the only group that decided to go over the Pinyan down to the Vignette. I didn't know of anyone else doing that. That's what we told the hut guardian when we got there too. And, you know, like three other people came that day. So it was more or less true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also just language barriers and all of that, like there's a lot that goes into it um, that may not be quite as clear from the movie. Not that the movie didn't do a good job. It's just like the way that it's framed, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. Second, I think the point that, um, that, totally frank makes because he starts it out and he has all these interviews of like mario is such a great guy he's super well known he's super knowledgeable you know we thought really highly of him we were good friends we and so i think it's such a it's so easy to see a news article about this and go oh he's a negligent guy like he shouldn't have been doing that and didn't know what he was doing and that's not at all i think that you know it, it's so much more gray than that and so yeah, i think absolutely. that Frank does an amazing job of showing like that, that he wasn't, you know, I think that you can see some red flags now where maybe the group was too big that um, I guess they didn't bring helmets. There's a few things that were just like, ah, you know, it wasn't as prepared, but also we probably had done it a bunch of times. And so, and he did have a really good relationship. It seems like with several of the clients. And so I think it just does a great job to show that, issues like this 
especially from the outside public that seems so black and white are not. Uh, you know, it's really, it's really complex. And, and that these people who obviously there was human error and there were lapses in, in judgment at times, that's not to say he was just a bad person that wanted things to happen badly in the mountain. No one wants that. And that he no, didn't have sure. a, a tremendous skill set. I mean, you don't become a pinned guide without knowing a whole lot. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another part of it. But um, I'm curious because you you discussed this a little bit or have brought this up. But in um, partially the reason why you didn't want to do something like the hot route is that you become the rescuer um, in these situations. Which wow, you called that um, <laughs> from a long ways away. Um, but what, what is your responsibility, um, as a guide in the mountains, um, to help people? Like, is there a written protocol or, or like, what does that look like? I'm curious. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there is a written protocol in the guide's manuals and, and so on and in the, in the guiding world, but I'm so far outside of that now. I just don't know what is current. You know, I took my first guide exam in 1992 and I earned my pin in 1999 and you know it, that everything around that has changed since then and I would say that you know what I the way I would understand it is you know everyone needs to act to the best of their abilities and if you know I think that Mario did that given the scenario that he had I mean you know, did he prepare adequately? Like, I don't, I, again, I don't want to look for, for blame, but like, I'm sure that he was trying to keep everybody alive and get them out of that situation. I'm sure that he actually died trying to do exactly that. And that's super tragic. But I think that, you know, for, for me, you know, it is often a gray area um for example the one not maybe the last time or the second to last time i climbed denali um i was doing it in a, a fast manner from the fourteen thousand foot camp to the top and on the way way down met this guy who just seemed really out of it i was i didn't i was just like i mean i just had like an ice axe and like a backpack with a thermos and a parka in it and you know, the weather was not perfect. And this guy was kind of out of it, really needed help. And I helped him right up to the point in which I felt like he was really endangering my life. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to help you, but I'm not honestly willing to die helping you. Like you got yourself into this and now you're in danger. You're putting me in danger. Cause I was, I, got this little piece of rope and I was trying to short rope him back down from uh, Denali Pass down to the 17,000 foot camp. And it's really pretty steep there. And the conditions were not good. It was a little bit icy. And this guy was like totally a toxic. He couldn't walk. And, you know, I thought he was just going to pull me down. Uh, and he's a big guy. I didn't know that I could hold him. And in those, in those kind of hard, icy conditions and, you know, I, I mean, it was really hard because I felt really guilty about like this guy, and I, and then he got himself down. He survived, but 
until I knew that he had gotten himself down and survived, I was just wrecked for like, you know, those two days because I didn't know, like, you know, and I'm like still doubting myself. Maybe I shouldn't have left him up there, but like, I kept coming back to this idea. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like if he had, if he had really pitched over hard, like I would not have been able to hold that guy. And I know that because I'm a mountain guide and I'm short roped a ton in my life. And I know this mountain super well, and I know my abilities and my limits. And I wish I could have you know, transported him out of that situation. But also I didn't put him in that situation. He put himself in that situation. And, uh, I'm, and, and yeah, yeah and that's, that's it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, it is. And that's a bit of a different situation because it's not, you didn't guide him to that point and then say, I can't do, you know, it's like, right, that right. was, yeah, he put himself there. You know, it's, I think we're going to come across this question a lot. But it's the question of to what to what do we owe others, and to what do we mm. owe ourselves and our families? Um, there's a whole philosophy book uh, with that title, and I think I mean just just a small anecdote. I've, I'm wilderness first responder certified, and one of the things they say is that there are times where where people go into the mountains and they're not expecting to be rescued that they go into the mountains to put themselves in the situation where if something happens, they're okay with that. And it's not your responsibility to, to die um, for them because to a certain extent, you, you are, I mean, an autonomous human being, you, you make your choices and yes, we, we need to help as much as we can. I don't think there's a single one of us who doesn't want to, uh, out there. But I, I do also like that in a sense, I think was, was truly one of the most important things I took away from, from that training is that there are some people who don't want to, nor ask to, for that help. And, and we have to know that too. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And this is one of the things I think that sort of the you know, we have to remember that these places are wilderness in the truest sense of the word. And it doesn't always feel like it, frankly, when you're on the, on, when you're up on high on the West buttress of Denali on a really nice day, it's, it's pretty nice, you know, <laughs> but a lot of times it just isn't like that. And same on the Hoot route. Like there's a lot of days like where, you know, that place where those people died and perished in that, exposed spot trying to bivy and we're trying to survive through a really bad storm and overnight like there's probably a lot of nights where they could have just like sat down and kind of dozed totally off fine. and woke up the next morning and walked down and been totally fine this just wasn't yeah. one of those nights and we have to respect that this is truly wilderness and you're really making that that decision you know when you when you when you go out into those places and you know, of course, we're humans, and so if we find somebody that's in trouble, we, we want to help them. But, uh, you know, it's a, it is, I think, a difference between the, the, the guide-client relationship and, you know, just sort of like a good Samaritan, if you will, kind of, kind of relationship where you're just trying to, trying to help people out. Um, but, again, I think that with great freedom comes great responsibility. And the first person you're responsible to is yourself and treating these places 
with the respect that they frankly deserve. And if you ignore, you know, you ignore that at your peril, at your own peril. And, and, and that's a lot of times, you know, people ignore that at their peril and get away with it. You know, that's also yeah, happens that's a lot. Tricky part. Yeah. And that's a tricky part, right? So then it just sort of breeds this complacency. And, you know, that's where I think that we, that, that's the gray. And that's where we have to, you know, be careful. And that's why these conversations are so important. We need to remind ourselves and remind the community of, of this, that this, this is gray. And we have to be vigilant if we want to truly be, you know, you know, survive and thrive through these experiences, which is really what they're for. And I think that that's how, you know, part of what I want to do with this series, and we've talked about this, Elisa, is I really want to be a part of the conversation that reframes the, I'd say, purpose of mountaineering. And I use that term in the broadest possible sense of going into the mountains on foot, on ski, on crampons and running shoes, all of the things that 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 this that going into the mountains and is a um is a great gift and a great responsibility and we do it as part of our journey as as humans and we need to in my opinion move well past this sort of success or failure viewpoint, this conquering of the mountain, this like that's, that is so last century (laughs) and we really need to let go of that and move past that as a community and not, I I don't want to say speak about this in terms of negatives. I want to speak about it in terms of positives, which is what it, can be. I mean, I think the mountains can be an incredible source of human, you know, inspiration of human experience of, of human beauty, a stage for human love. And it's of course a stage for human sorrow and tragedy. And this is what makes it all so interesting. And this is why um, I'm so passionate you know, about our project that we share in with Uphill Athlete and with others and, you know, just being, continuing to be part of this mountain community and keep talking about like all the good that there is out there in the sense of a practice, in the sense of a process that it's never over. There is no like this whole kind of summit or death or like, you know, win or lose or right or wrong. It's this, this binary viewpoint of mountaineering is just, we're done with it. Let's move on. Let's, let's completely change the conversation into one where it's about what we're experiencing, what we're sharing, what we're learning, how we're showing up, how we're feeling, how we're, how we're, how we're inspired, how we're triggered, how we're all of these things and, and, and growing because that's what this is about. And I hope, you know, that we can create a, 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 and, and perpetuate and contribute to this conversation in, across the whole community that we can all do this as, and make it actually part of our culture. I think that for me is, is, is the linchpin. We make it part of our culture as friends, as families, as community, 
and the goal is to be out and doing and enjoying to the best of our abilities for as long as possible for as many good days in the mountains as we possibly can and and that is success that is what we're striving for not not just like you know how many how many dozen meter peaks did you climb or whatever the whatever the metric is you know this is not running around a track let's stop treating it like like it you know let's start engaging the process sorry that was my little that was my little no that's yeah that was i mean that's that among other things is exactly why we're talking i mean i think it's why why a athlete exists and it's why I mean, I have so much respect for you is, is because of that perspective. And yeah, I think, I I think that we're, we're getting there. Um, But especially as we see more and more people entering these spaces, I think we just have to keep being more aware and and keep supporting each other and Mm -hmm. um, knowing that that this is not weakness. It even, sh- it shouldn't even be associated with that at all. It's, it's a means of becoming, it's like everything we do is, is how do we move through the mountains in the safest, most responsible and you know, the, like this most storytelling way that we can, I guess, in a way. And, and mm. so I think this all goes to that. Um, I will say, and I don't, I don't know where this fits, but I feel like it needs to be said is that I, I think part of the why we do go to the mountains is because there is an element of danger, because there is an element of uncertainty in a way that we don't get from our daily lives, that we, we seek that, that unknown, because so much of our lives is really regimented. And it's not that I ever every one of these these tragedies is truly a tragedy but i also think that that element of of curiosity and unknown is part of what draws us and there isn't danger element and i think that that is a really important aspect for good or for bad i mean it kind of goes to that gray area of like that comes with the package yeah Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, I think that there's a couple of points you said that I thought were really good. And one is that or at least all of what you said was really good, but I just want to reiterate on a couple. And one was that, you know, there's a lot of new people coming into the sport and it's, it's our responsibility now, but it'll, at some point in the not too distant future, it's going to be their responsibility to keep beating this drum and keep talking about this. And keep setting. That's that's what culture is. This is is this is having this conversation over and over and over again. And we're going to do that. We're going to play our role. And you know, to the risk piece, I think you know we should have some other conversations about risk. And I think it's important to understand that you know, skiing the whole route is not the same thing as camping in the middle of a freeway. You know, it's yes, exactly. Abject risk there, or if you want to commit suicide, like you know, there there are ways to do that, and unfortunately, you know, and tragically, many you know people have done so. And what we are the the risk component in the mountains is a parameter, but it's not the defining aspect. 
And I think that, you know, this goes back to my kind of concept or not my kind of concept, but this goes back to the concept of sort of dealing with reality, like hyper reality, like risk is part of that reality and we don't need to overinflate it, but we also certainly don't want to, you know, diminish it or ignore it. And, you know, it's, that is part of the dance and that is part of the value, frankly, of moving through the mountains is that you have this as one of your dance partners. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Well, we're going to link to the movie. Yeah. Well, I think we're not, neither of us is sure how to conclude here or how to wrap this up, but I'll let you go first. I was just going to say, I mean, the kind of the final question I put is what are your biggest takeaways? But I think we've, we've kind of said that without having to, to explicitly ask that question. I mean, I guess from, from what I, what I take away from this conversation and wow, do I feel privileged to get to have this conversation with you, Steve, I do feel really lucky. I often forget that I'm talking to the to Steve House. I just think of you as oh, Steve, my friend. But uh, as you should. Um, and <laughs> but I think that you know these these things are that you can never stop learning. That judgment is not nearly as useful as, or not at all useful in comparison to learning and understanding, and that many of these things are very gray and that we shouldn't think of it as success or failure or right or wrong. We should think of it as, as growth and, and passing that along to the generations to come and that humans are humans. We're complex and that's what makes it beautiful. And that's what makes it dangerous and challenging. And it's why we want to go to the mountains. So Ah. well said Mm. you know i don't know technically yet if this is possible but we'll do our best to embed the film in in the post on the website on the uphill athlete website with this podcast it depends on the settings that they have on their youtube channel and if not we'll make sure that there's a a way people can find the film and you know it's going to be available in english uh, later on this summer or this fall it's going to make the rounds, I'm sure, at film festivals, and we'll probably see some other distribution. And it's a beautiful film about a tragic event. And I hope that, you know, all the best that I feel like we can do is to try to encourage people to watch the film and have these conversations among themselves. And, you know, hopefully what we were able to say to one another tonight can be woven into those conversations and uh yeah we can all be in a little better place because of it that's the best thing that can come out of this tragedy definitely well thank you steve i think uh it's time to to call it call it good maybe grab another well, cup of tea or beer and the beer and is empty off. that's how i know the beer is empty know, that's when, the, end. When the bottle yeah. is empty that's that's when the podcast is over <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, great. Thanks, Steve, for all of this. And and we, this is just the beginning. Um, I think this was a good start. Indeed. So we're signing off from the house.